Well, so far in Luke's Gospel, we've covered the first two years of Jesus' ministry. Uh, And in those years, Jesus has done a lot of things that would give people the opportunity to form an opinion of him. Uh, He's taught about the kingdom of God. He's taught about many different things. He's uh, healed many people of different diseases. He's cast out demons. He's even raised people from the dead. Last week, we saw him feed over 5,000 people, which is five loaves and two fish. So Jesus has done plenty of things that would give people an opportunity to form an opinion about who he was. And as we pick up here this morning in Luke chapter 9, we're going to see Jesus pose two questions. And these two questions are ultimately asking, who do people say that I am? What do people think about me? What, what is their conclusion after these two years of ministry, all that I've done, all that I've taught? What are people saying about me? Who do they think that I am? And these questions are, are very important questions. The responses that we see from Jesus' disciples are very important questions. And I think there's a lot that uh, we can learn from them. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, says this. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them, saying... Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. So Jesus just got done feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And he goes by himself and to pray. And while he's there, the disciples come to him. And Jesus poses a question to these disciples. He says, who do the crowds say that I am, guys? You know, you've been hearing the crowds. You've been with me for two years. You know, you've seen me do these miracles. We just fed five, over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. People are starting to talk. Who are they saying that I am? Well, his disciples respond with three different things the crowd was saying about Jesus. Some in the crowd are saying that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah. And some are saying that you're one of the prophets risen from the dead. You know, the crowds recognized there was something great about Jesus, and so they picked some of the greatest people in their history to describe Jesus. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And it's understandable why the people thought these things about Jesus, because Jesus preached repentance like John the Baptist preached. Jesus did amazing miracles like Elijah did. And Jesus brought the message of the kingdom like the prophets did. So among the crowd of people, there were different opinions as to who Jesus was. But you know what? None of those opinions were the right opinion. Today we have our own crowds with their own opinions of who Jesus was. You know, many non-religious people say that Jesus was a good person, that he taught good things. People who believe in Islam would say that Jesus was a prophet like Muhammad. People who believe in Mormonism would say that Jesus was Lucifer's brother. Jehovah Witnesses would say that Jesus was a perfect man, but he wasn't God. And there are many more opinions out there as to who Jesus was and uh, what he did. But something I find interesting is that a lot of opinions about Jesus are placed in a very positive light. Actually, the majority of people who refer to Jesus, who don't actually believe he's God, still look at him as someone who was good. Probably the most common thing you hear is that Jesus was a good person who did good things. And most religions that mention Jesus mention him in a positive light. 
He's either a prophet like an Islam, an, an angel, or Jehovah Witnesses, a perfect man. They say something good about him. But the thing that I find interesting about all those people, they don't believe that Jesus was God. They believe he was good, but they don't believe he was God. And I want you to understand something that's important, because you come across people, I'm sure, all the time, who will say, oh yeah, Jesus was a good person, or Jesus was a good teacher, but I don't believe that he was God. And I want you to understand that those two statements don't go together. You can't claim that Jesus was good, but he wasn't God. And I'm going to tell you why. Josh McDowell, a Christian apologist, author, and defender of Christianity, uh, he says this, that people who claim that Jesus is good but he isn't God have a big dilemma. They have a logical problem that they have to face. Now here is why there's a big problem saying that Jesus was good but that he wasn't God. You see, something very important to understand about Jesus is that he himself claimed he was God many times. He said, I am God. I'll give you a few examples in Scripture where Jesus shares that He is God. And the religious leader's response to this shows that they clearly understood it because they wanted to kill Him for claiming to be God. In John chapter 10, verses 30-33, through Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's clearly saying, I am God. And the religious leaders of that time clearly understood that, and that's why they took up stones to kill him. And he says, well, for what good work are you going to stone me? And they said, oh, it's not for a good work. It's because you, being a man, claim to be God. They see that as blasphemy. They didn't believe Jesus was God, but they understood he claimed to be God. John chapter 8, verse 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then once again they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them, and so they passed by. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, once again he's claiming to be God. Now here's an interesting reality of Abraham lived hundreds before, years before Jesus, so just even saying, hey, before Abraham was existing, I was exist, existed, is one thing. But this term, I am, is very significant. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, you have Moses who's out in the wilderness, and he sees the burning bush, and he has this encounter with God, and God sends Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says to God, who shall I tell the Israelites sends me? Because they're not going to believe that you sent me. So, so who should I say sends me? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. That term, that name described God. And that was something that was very important to the nation of Israel because Moses comes with that term. Who sent you, Moses? I am sent me. God sent me. And so when Jesus uses this term, the religious leaders of that day knew exactly what he was saying, which is why, once again, they pick up stones to stone him because they believed that he was claiming to be God. In John chapter 14, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, he says, You know what, Jesus? Just show us God the Father, and that will be sufficient for us. And notice Jesus' response to Philip in verse 9 of chapter 14. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? When Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, once again he's saying, I am God. Philip, if you've seen me and seen my life, you've seen the Father because we're one. 
I am God. Once again, Jesus is making this very clear. And we could go on and on because he says this so often in the Bible. But I want to bring this up because the dilemma that people have when they say Jesus was good, but he wasn't God, is faced with this reality that Jesus claimed to be God. And here's the problem. Okay, If Jesus claimed to be God, then that claim is either true or that claim is false. Okay, He either was God or he wasn't God. Now, all of the people who say that Jesus was good but wasn't God, they're saying that Jesus' claim to be God was false. They obviously don't believe he was who he claimed to be. Now, if Jesus knew his claim, there's, there's kind of two responses here, two possibilities about Jesus if what he claimed to be was false. First of all, Jesus knew it was false. Or second, he didn't know it was false. Now, if Jesus knew that his claim to be God was false, he knew that he was claiming something that wasn't true, that makes Jesus a liar. Actually, he would be viewed as one of the greatest liars of all time because of how many millions of people have believed that he is God, that believe that his message that I can save you of your sins, that I'm the way to heaven. You know, so if, if what he was claiming was false, he would be considered one of the greatest liars and deceivers in all of history. Now, if Jesus didn't know his claim to be God was false, then that really just makes him a deranged lunatic. Here's a man who thought he was something that he wasn't. He thought he was God, but he actually wasn't. If we saw someone today who going around saying, oh, I'm God, but they're not, we would put them in this category of a, you know, a mentally deranged person. Now, if Jesus' claim to be God is true, then that makes him Lord. It makes him who he claimed to be. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Jesus can be only one of three things because of the fact that he claimed to be God. He can be Lord, liar, or lunatic. If his claim to be God is true, then he is Lord, then he is who he claimed to be. If his claim to be God is not true, then he either knew it, and he's a liar, or he didn't know it, and he's a lunatic. But with either of those responses, you can't say he's good, because a liar's not good and a lunatic's not good. And so here's the problem, here's the dilemma that people face when they say, oh, wait a second, Jesus is good, but he's not God. Well, did you know that he claimed to be God? And since he claimed to be God, you can't say that he was good because he's either a liar, claiming something that he knew was false, or he just thought he was something he wasn't. And that still makes him someone not good, someone who was just deranged. So the only way that Jesus can be good is if he is who he claimed to be, God. And I think that's an important thing because you're going to come across so many people who are going to throw that at you. And I encourage you when they say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus was a good person. Or I believe Jesus was a good teacher. But do you believe he's God? No. First of all, you want to help them see, did you know that he actually claimed to be that? And just use the Lord, liar, lunatic logic with them and help them realize, you know what? You actually can't make that claim because of the fact that Jesus said he was God. So Jesus starts by posing this question. And he hears that, you know, a lot of people are saying good things about me. They're saying, I'm John the Baptist. They're saying, I'm Elijah. They're saying, I'm one of the prophets. All these things were good. It's like saying, you know what? Oh, yes, Jesus is a good person. But notice none of them recognize the truth of who Jesus is. None of them say, he's God. He's the Messiah. They just all mention good people. But now Jesus, after he has posed this question to his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples are starting to think about this question. Well, some say this, and, and some say that, and, and some say this. Now Jesus is going to get to a more important question, a more personal question. After he says, you know, who do the crowds say that I am? He turns around to the disciples, and he asks something much more important. He says, now, who do you say that I am? 
It's nice that you understand what the crowds think. It's nice that you know these three different things that people are saying. But what is it that you guys think about me? What do you believe about me? Who do you say that I am? What do you personally believe about me? You know, this is one of the most significant questions anyone will ever answer. Because your answer to this question will determine your eternity. Your answer to this question will determine whether or not your sins are forgiven or not. Who do you say that Jesus is? Your answer to who He is, your belief in that, is going to determine so much. Is Jesus just a man that preached repentance like John the Baptist? Is He just a man that did miracles like Elijah? Is He just a a prophet that spoke the words of God? Is He just a man that was a good teacher or a good person? Is He just a prophet like Muhammad as in Islam? Is He just the brother of Lucifer like the uh, Mormons believe? Or is He something much more? Something much greater? Is He God who came to be one of us and died for our sins on the cross? So when Jesus asked the disciples this very important question about who He was, Peter's the first one to respond. And when you look through the Gospels, you always see that Peter's often the first one to respond. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad. Sometimes Peter puts his foot in his mouth and says something stupid, and sometimes he says something very profound, like we see here. Jesus says, you're the Christ of God. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, we find that Jesus says, uh, Peter says a little bit more. Matthew 16, 16, it says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, Peter knew that the opinion of the crowd, while it was complimentary towards Jesus, was not accurate. Jesus was much more than John the Baptist, much more than Elijah, much more than one of the prophets. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, I think it's interesting, you hear a lot of people say Jesus Christ in the world, and they use it more of a swear word, but even in the church we say Jesus Christ. Something you need to understand is Christ is not Jesus' last name. And I think some people think that. Well, what's his name? Jesus Christ. You know, my name's Matthew McGoldrick. His name's Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name. It's a title. And most people don't even understand what the title is. Actually, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. In the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament, every time this word Messiah comes up, it's the Hebrew word translated that. The New Testament is Greek. And every time you have the concept of Messiah, you have this Greek word, Christ. Both words just mean the anointed one. And so when Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's saying, you are the Messiah. You are God. You're the one that we've been waiting for. Peter gave the right response to the question because that is exactly who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament that He would come and that He would save the people from their sins. Who do you say that Jesus is, is a question everyone in the world has to answer. And in the bottom line, everyone's going to have an answer for it. There's a lot of different answers out there, but there's only one right answer. There's only one true answer. And that is that Jesus is God. He's the one who came as a man, died for our sins on the cross. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Acts 16, 30 and 31 said, And He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice that these verses tell us that you'll be saved when you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead. 
Believe that He died for your sins. It doesn't say, you know what, you'll be saved if you believe Jesus was a prophet. You'll be saved if you believe Jesus was a good man. You'll be saved if you believe Jesus was a good teacher. You'll be saved if you believe Jesus was Lucifer's brother. You'll be saved if all these other concepts that people have. He says, no, there's only one way to be saved, and that's if you truly believe that Jesus is God, that He came and He paid the price for your sin on the cross, and that God raised Him from the dead to conquer sin and death. So the most important question any of us will ever answer is, who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer to that question needs to be something that all of us know. Now for those of us who have already accepted Jesus, who already know the answer to this question, something important for us to recognize is God doesn't just want it to stop there. Oh, that's great. I already know that, Pastor. You know, you can move on now. Well, you know what? God wants us to know the answer to this question, but He also wants us to make this answer known to the world that doesn't know it. And this is sometimes where where Christians fall very short. Oh, yeah, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know that He's God. That's fine. I've accepted that. But yeah, but do you make that known to those who don't? Are you sharing that with those who don't? Because we've been commanded as believers to go out and make this wonderful truth of who Jesus is and what He's done known to the world. So it's not just good enough to know it, we also need to make it known to those who don't. Now a great way to make known who Jesus is to others is when you're discussing beliefs with people. You know what? Get the conversation to Jesus. And a great question is just, what do you believe about Jesus? Just starting it off there because, you know, you find when you talk with people, that's kind of a topic where they they steer clear of oftentimes. And so, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? And you'll find that usually the first response is very general. Oh, yeah, you know, I think Jesus was a good person or or a historical figure or whatever it may be. And when that's the response, oh, great. Then you get more specific. You know what? Do you believe Jesus was God? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin on the cross? You start posing these questions to people to really help them understand. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. What are your thoughts? What do you think about him? And then when they start answering those questions, you have a good starting point now for what they believe about Jesus, and you can start working forward with that. Okay, now I realize you don't have a clue of what the Bible says, or or maybe you think Jesus is good, but you don't believe He's God, you don't believe He saved you, you don't believe He died on the cross for your sins, you don't believe He's the only way to heaven, and then you can start sharing with them what the Bible teaches. But oftentimes when we get into these discussions about beliefs with people, you know, we get so sidetracked with things that really don't matter when we should be focusing on what matters the most, and that's Jesus. My desire always in conversations is to get to Jesus as quickly as possible because that really breaks through so much stuff because at the end of the day, all the other things are kind of smoke that is just clouding the real reality. What is your feeling towards Jesus? Because that's the heart of it all. What do you believe about him? Let's get to there, and we'll start from there. And that's the the foundation that's so important for us. Because you you talk with other religions, and they want to talk about what we have in common. Oh, yeah, but we believe in these morals, and and we're similar in that and that and that. Yeah, that's nice, but what do you feel about Jesus? I know that us in Islam, you know, we have a lot of morals that are similar. But, yeah, what what do you believe about Jesus? Because you believe he's a prophet. I believe he's God, and that's very different. And you don't believe that he's the way to heaven. I do. That's very different. So we get straight to Jesus, and all of a sudden, we really find out the most important things. And so I would encourage you in your conversations, bring it to Jesus as quickly as possible. So Peter, he gives the right answer to the question when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? You're the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, something important for us to realize is calling Jesus the Messiah was right on the mark because he is the Messiah. He was the Messiah that they were waiting for. But here's the thing that we need to recognize. During that time, the concept of the Messiah was skewed. 
what they thought the Messiah was going to do was not correct. You see, the thought of the time there of the Jews at Jesus' time, they thought the Messiah was going to be a king that was going to overthrow the Romans, that was going to take power, that was going to make Israel ultimately a superpower in their day. And that's exactly what the disciples were looking for. They, they wanted a Messiah who would rule, who would establish his kingdom, a Messiah then that they would be the right-hand men to, and they would get to rule and reign with him. Now, the reason the disciples and the Jews at that time thought this about the uh, Messiah is because the Old Testament does prophesy these things. The Old Testament talks about the Messiah coming and ruling from Jerusalem, from the throne of David, as a descendant of David. It talks about him conquering the enemies of uh, Israel. It talks about him being the Prince of Peace, who's ultimately going to rule, and there's going to be a time of great peace when he does. And so the, the Old Testament does prophesy this about the Messiah. So it's understandable why they were expecting this, why they were wanting this, especially as they were under the power of Rome and desperate to get out of that, thinking the Messiah is going to rescue us from the tyranny of Rome. It was understandable that they saw that. But the problem is, in the Old Testament, it spoke of two comings of Jesus. The first coming, he didn't come as the conquering king to establish his kingdom, to conquer Israel's enemies. He came to give his life. He came to die for the sins of the world. And that's not something that they were so interested in because the situation that they were in, they're like, you know, we need a conquering king because we are right now conquered by Rome and we need someone to help us overthrow them and someone to make us a power again. And so that's what they were looking for. But ultimately, the Old Testament reveals both. And they missed the reality of Jesus coming as the suffering servant who came to give his life instead of the conquering king. Now, the reality is the Bible is very clear that there's going to be a second coming which is future to now, where Jesus is going to come and he's going to come to Israel and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem and there's a time of peace that the world's never going to have seen before this where the Prince of Peace is going to rule. And so that is still happening. The Bible prophesied it; it will still take place, but yet the initial coming of Jesus was not that. And so it's understandable why the disciples, why the Jews thought this about the Messiah, but they missed it. And so when, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, it's like, well, that's good, Peter, but now I need to inform you of what the Messiah's real mission is. Because you think the Messiah's mission is to go and conquer Rome and establish this kingdom here and do all these things. But actually, that's not the mission that I have. And so now Jesus is going to help Peter and the disciples understand the true mission of the Messiah and what he's come to do. Verse 21. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. So the Jews and the disciples believe the Messiah is going to be a king, a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, a Messiah who's going to rule and conquer. And so Jesus says, You know what? I don't want you to tell anyone about this. And the reason he doesn't want them to tell anyone that he's the Messiah is because he realizes what you're telling them is that, oh, the man is here to conquer and rule and reign. He's like, no, no, I didn't come to do that. And so I don't want you spreading that news to everyone that the Messiah is here because they have a wrong concept of why I'm here. And now Jesus is going to share with them the true mission of the Messiah. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and, and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. So Jesus makes very clear here, this is my mission. You know what? I have come to suffer and to be rejected 
and ultimately to give my life. I'm going to be executed. And on the third day, guys, you know what? Here's the good news. And they seem to miss this because, you know, when Jesus died, they were just despondent and thought it was all over. But he told them many times, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But yet, you know, they were a little bit uh, hard-headed and didn't get this information. But, you know, this would have been an unbelievable shock to the disciples because ultimately they were hoping for the exact opposite of what Jesus tells them. They didn't think Jesus was going to suffer. They thought he was going to relieve the suffering of the nation of Israel. They didn't think Jesus was going to be rejected, especially by fellow Jews. They thought that he was going to be widely accepted because the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They surely didn't think that Jesus would be killed, but that he would conquer the enemies that were trying to kill them. So what Jesus says here would have been quite a shock to the disciples. You know, I was thinking about this and trying to get something in our modern day that might help us understand maybe how the disciples would feel. And, and here's an example. Hopefully it will help if it doesn't oh well. But um, try to imagine how you would feel if the presidential candidate you have always wanted finally ran for president. But not only did he run, he won. He got the presidential candidacy, the man or the woman whose beliefs matched with yours, whose vision for the country was just what you wanted, and you were just so excited that finally now the person who's going to rule and lead our country is someone that I have wanted for so long, whose vision is just what I think this country needs, and I can't wait till he gets into office and starts leading this country down the path that I feel it needs to go. So you're super excited about that. And then right before the inauguration, you're excited he's finally going to be sworn in to be president of the United States. He goes on national television and he tells everyone, you know, I'm going to Washington, D.C., but not to become president. I'm going there to suffer. I'm going there to be rejected by the American people. And then I'm there to be executed. Now imagine how you would feel that person who was a great supporter was so desperate for this person to finally get into power in the United States, and now that person tells you everything that you hope that they would do, they're going to do the exact opposite. They're going to go, they're going to suffer, they're going to be rejected, and ultimately they're going to die. So what you wanted is not going to happen. Now to make this example maybe more accurate to where the disciples were at, instead of just being a supporter of the president, imagine that you were the lead campaign person that helped this president actually get elected. And now that you've done that, you're going to be the chief of staff in the White House. He's giving you the, the right-hand position to the presidency. You're going to have all this power, all this position, and, and whoa, you're excited. You're starting to think about, oh man, look at the position I have and all the things that we're going to be able to do to change this country, and you're excited about that. And now, this man that you love so much, this man that you got in the White House, this man that you're going to serve next to, tells you and the other staff members in a little meeting, you know what, guys? I know that we're headed to Washington. I know that you know, we're going there for the uh, inauguration, but I just want you to know I'm not going to be president. When we go there, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. Now, if you were those people and you're starting to think about all the things that this position is going to do for you and all that you're going to be able to do for the country, and you're, what? Imagine how you would feel. All your hopes, all your dreams, everything is just dashed in that statement of the one that I followed the one that I've done all this for, you're going to die? You're going to be rejected? You're going to suffer? This is how the disciples would have felt. And this is a very significant turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has now revealed very clearly for the first time his true mission. I've come to die. I've come to die in Jerusalem. And from this point now, they're in the north up in Galilee. They're going to start making a slow journey down to Jerusalem. 
But the reality is we take this shift in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is taking us on this journey, and the end result is they get to Jerusalem, and ultimately Jesus is going to be executed and then rise from the dead. And so this is a starting point with here's what's going to happen, and from now on Luke's taking us closer and closer to the result, the end of this mission that Jesus has come to fulfill. So Jesus just informed the disciples of his true mission, but you know what? It gets a little worse. For them, I'm sure this was hard to take in, but he says, you know what? Now that you know what the Messiah really is going to do, I want to redefine for you what it means to follow me. Because you've had this concept of what it means to be a disciple of mine, but you've never understood what it means to be a, uh, the Messiah, what I'm actually coming to do. So now that you know that, let's look back at what it means to follow me. And so Jesus is going to help them see, hey, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. And now you need to understand what it means to be my follower. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever desires to lose his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death, death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You know, this was a pretty bad time in the disciples' relationship with Jesus. They just heard this news that was devastating. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to be rejected, and you're going to be executed. Well, guys, you know what? It's actually worse than that. Um, if that's not bad enough, they hear now, hey, being your disciple means something very different than what I thought. Because with that example that I gave you, and I want you to think about their mindset. Hey, they're about to be the right-hand man to the most powerful man in the world. That was their mindset. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to rule and reign, and we're going to be his right-hand men. And wow, that's going to be great. When you look through the Gospels, you see something that's kind of silly and interesting. The disciples are constantly arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest. The greatest in what? The greatest in this kingdom that they thought Jesus was going to establish. Oh, Peter says, I'm going to be the real right-hand man. I'm going to be the greatest. I'll be greater than you, John, and greater than you, Matthew. Uh, and oh, no, no, I'm going to be the greatest. And they bickered like little kids over who was going to be the greatest because that's what they thought was going to happen. They thought being Jesus' disciple brought them great power, brought them great authority, going to bring them great position. And now all of a sudden they realize actually being Jesus' disciple is not about so much what it brings to you guys, you need to realize being Jesus' disciple is going to be a sacrifice. This was a huge wake-up call for them. Because they don't think we're really thinking about what they were going to sacrifice. I think they were thinking about all that they were going to get in position and power. The first most important thing of being Jesus' disciple, he says, you know what, guys, there's three things that you need to do. If you want to be my disciples, here's three things, and all of them include sacrifice. Number one, maybe the hardest one of all, you're going to have to deny yourself. The Greek word here translated deny yourself means to renounce self, to cease to make self the object of one's life and actions. It's ultimately telling us, you know what? Don't be selfish. 
Don't be living life with you as the focus, and it's all about you and all that you can get, and, and, and that's what life's all about. Now, that's difficult for us, because from an infancy on, we live in a world that constantly tells us it is all about you. And you should indulge all of your desires and, you know, oh, you're worth it. And constantly we're having advertisements and we're having movies and we're having all these influences that basically tell us, yes, it's all about me and I should just live life for my pleasures, for my desires. And we're not really challenged so much in our culture to deny self. We're actually challenged to indulge self. And so Jesus says, you know, you want to be my disciple? The first thing you need to understand is there's a self-denial. Don't be thinking so much about the power and the prestige and the position that you would get if I established my kingdom. What you should be thinking about is a self-sacrifice, denying yourself. I think one of the biggest things that hinders us from following Jesus the way that we should is this is something that's not something we are willing to do oftentimes. We don't want to deny ourselves. Lord, 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 I want to be your disciple and fulfill my own desires. That's kind of where I want to be. I'd love to follow you and not deny myself. I'd actually like to indulge myself and follow you at the same time. But here's the problem. If we're not denying ourselves, we cannot follow Jesus the way he commands us to do it. We're going to have to deny one or the other. And the reality is when we're not willing to deny ourselves, ultimately what we end up doing is denying Jesus and the call that he has and the commands that he has for our life. Because you can't live for yourself and your pleasures and then think that you can live for God. Because our fleshly desires and the pleasures that we have are totally contradictory to God's plan and His calling and His commands for us. And so if we're not willing to deny ourselves, ultimately we're denying Him and what He wants for us. And so we have to make a choice. Who are we going to deny and who are we going to indulge? Are we going to indulge Jesus and His plan and deny ourselves? Or are we going to indulge our flesh and our desires and ultimately deny Jesus. We don't like to put it in those terms, but that's the reality of it. If I'm indulging myself, I'm denying Jesus. If I'm willing to deny myself, then and only then can I truly indulge in what Jesus has for me and follow him the way that he's called me to do it. So the first important thing about being Jesus' disciple is he says, you know, you need to deny yourself. The second important thing about being Jesus' disciple is to take up your cross daily. I think this is one of those things, you've probably heard this passage before, and this little thing, take up your cross daily, for us today is just so, um, we just don't get what Jesus is talking about because cross for us today is nothing like it was for them. The meaning of this word cross today, we have so much that we have today, so romanticized and so you're religious. I mean, just think about the cross I mean, you got the cross as a religious symbol that people uh, say this is what we believe. You have crosses, jewelry, gold crosses, diamond crosses, cross bracelets, cross tattoos. I mean, there's crosses everywhere because we've, we've come to accept this as kind of a religious symbol or just a nice symbol. Um, but, you know, that is not the way in which the disciples, when they hear this term, would have thought. For them, the cross was just one thing and one thing only, a brutal instrument of death. The Romans were great at torturing people. And they came up with one of the best torture methods of all, the cross. I don't have time to go into it. It's actually a great study to think about what happens to someone when they're hung on a cross. And they were meant to actually live for about three days because it was so torturous. Um, But I won't get into all the things that happened. But the, the Romans came up with this for a way to really torture you to the greatest capacity. And so when everyone thought of crosses, it was... One thing, that's a brutal instrument of death. And the Romans were smart. They'd put a cross right there where everybody had to walk on a main path, and above it they'd put what you did wrong. 
You notice they did that with Jesus as well. So you might have thief, murderer, whatever, but you know what? You're walking there going to work, and you look up, and you see this person in agony, and you see thief, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm never stealing. If that's what's going to happen to me, it was a good you know, thing that they used to try to stop people from doing that stuff, but their thought would be instrument of death. So for us today, it would be more like Jesus saying, take up your electric tear daily and follow me, or walk down death row daily. Now, you know, you don't see people wearing electric chair necklaces. You don't see people wearing electric chair bracelets or get electric chair tattoos. Maybe some people do. But, you know, the bottom line is you would think that person's pretty morbid. They're walking around with this big electric chair with this person getting fried on their, you know, necklace or something. That'd be, you know, we would look at that as like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that? Because all we do is associate the electric chair with death, with a way to kill someone. But that's all that the disciples would have thought of at that time when they heard cross. And I want you to keep that in mind, because when Jesus says, take up your cross, they're not, oh, that's such a romantic thing, take up my cross. No, you mean die? Because ultimately that's what Jesus is telling. You know what? Take up your cross daily and follow me. All they associate with the cross is death. He just said you need to deny yourself, and now ultimately he's telling them you need to die to yourself. But you know, I think it's interesting that Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Which shows he's ultimately speaking spiritually. Because no one can physically take up your cross daily because taking up your cross ultimately leads to death. So if you take up your cross every day, you can't die every day. So Jesus is speaking of a more spiritual reality of each and every day, I want you to die to yourself. I think taking up your cross daily has a twofold mindset. First, it's crucifying your flesh. Daily dying to the sinful things in your life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We're challenging you. Know what? Put to death the sin in your life. Die to it. No longer fulfill it. No longer live for it. No longer indulge in it. Second is to daily sacrifice yourself to God. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. God not only wants us to die to the sin in our life, He also wants us to daily give our lives to Him. And that's so much harder. You know, I think of my girls, I think of my wife, and if a car was coming and they're standing in the street, I'd have no problem shoving them out of the way, taking the blow, dying myself. But you know what? That's a whole lot easier than every single day for the rest of my life to deny myself. To say, you know what? I'm going to put their needs before mine. I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to die to myself, and I'm going to live for other people. It's one thing in a moment to say, here, I'm going to jump out in front of a car. But how many of us are willing to say, you know what? Every single day, I'm going to die and deny the things that I want in order to live for God. So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to give your life to me. You need to take up your cross daily. So the second important thing about being just Jesus' disciple is taking your cross daily, dying to yourself. And the third thing that Jesus says is just follow me. The Greek word translated follow means to imitate, to try to be like someone, to follow the example of another. You know, the biggest aspect of being Jesus' disciple is following his example. He said the perfect example of how we should live, and that should be what we're looking to. 
Now, once again, we live in a culture and a society that has all these different things to say, oh, live like this and do this and do that. And we need to get past all the things that are trying to consume us and cause us to become like them and say, no, we want to be like Jesus. He's the example that we're following. We are his disciples, and so we're not going to grab onto what the world says we should be like over here or what the world says we should be like here. We're going to throw all that aside, and we're going to say, no, we're going to be like Jesus. That is the example because we are his disciples, and we want to follow him and nothing else. And this is something that is very difficult because we have so many things that are wanting us to follow it, wanting us to be like it, and we need to make a choice to say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus and his example. So for those people who don't want to accept Jesus, they don't want to follow Him, they don't want to deny themselves, they don't want to take up their cross, Jesus has some words for them, a warning and a challenge in verses 24 through 26. Actually, I think it was already on there. No, maybe it wasn't. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever desires to lose his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. Forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You know, Jesus gives a great challenge, but also something that's very logical. What good is it? Those of you who don't want to deny yourself, those of you who don't want to die to yourself, those of you who don't want to follow Jesus but just want to indulge your life, what good is it if in your life you do that? You get all you want, you fill your desires, you follow yourself, you, you do everything that you want to, you get all this world has to offer. What good is it if at the end of the day, when you die, you lose something far more valuable, your own soul, your own life? What good is it to live for this world and this life if it means in eternity you spend it in hell? And that's what Jesus is trying to say. You know what? For those of you who think, oh, it's, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it to live for myself, not deny myself. It's worth it to, you know, not die to myself, but actually live for myself. It's worth it to follow me instead of follow Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, it's not. Because even if you get everything this world has to offer, what good is it if in the end of the day you lose everything in eternity? Because that's the reality. You reject Jesus in this life, in the life to come, you're going to be rejected and you're going to be punished for the sin that you committed. You could be the richest person in this world. You could be the most powerful person in this world. You could be the most popular person in this world. But it's worthless if you gain all of that and yet lose your own soul. People who reject Jesus in this life will be rejected by Jesus in the life to come. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes. Basically saying, you reject me in this life when you stand before me. Revelation chapter 20 talks about Jesus and the white throne judgment, and we're going to stand before him, and all the things that we've been done are going to be judged. And he says, you know what? If you rejected me in this life, there's going to be a time where you stand before me, and I am going to reject you because I gave you the opportunity. I died on the cross for your sin. You could have accepted my punishment so that you wouldn't be have to, but you rejected the punishment that I gave on your behalf, and now you're going to have to be punished for yourself. Denying yourself in this life, dying to yourself in this life, following Jesus in this life has eternal rewards. Indulging yourself in this life, living for yourself in this life, following yourself in this life has eternal consequences. 
And Jesus wants us to realize that this life is so short, you might get 70, 80, 90 years if you're lucky, but eternity is just that. It lasts forever. You know, some people have this concept of, well, some die and go to heaven and live for others, and others just die. No, we all live forever. It's just a matter of where. The Bible is very clear. You're going to either live forever in heaven with God, or you're going to live forever apart from God in hell. And it's all based on the choice that we've looked at with the question, who is Jesus? If you understand that Jesus is God who saved you from your sin and you've accepted Him, then you're going to be with Him in heaven. If you reject who Jesus is, reject what He's done for you, that leads to the other place, which is hell. So the most important question that any of us will ever answer is, who do you say that Jesus is? And for those of us who know that right answer, God doesn't just want us to be satisfied with, oh, I know it, I'm saved. He says, yeah, but I want you to be my disciple. I want to use you to impact this world. And in order for that to happen, you need to deny yourself. You need to die to yourself. And you need to follow me because there's so much I want to do through you. Because it's not just knowing this information. I also want to use you to make this information known to a world that doesn't know it, that is in desperate need of it. And we've been called the light in this darkness, ambassadors for Christ. And we're not very good when we're not disciples of Jesus. We're not lights like we should be. We're not ambassadors like we should be when we're living for ourselves, when we're not willing to die to ourselves, when we're ultimately following ourselves instead of following Jesus. And he says, I want disciples that are going to impact this world. And if you want to do that, these are three things you need to do. And it's great when you look at the fact that the disciples of Jesus in the book of Acts ultimately do these three things and they impact the world for Christ. God can do so much in our lives when we truly commit to following Him. You know, Jesus is the example of what we should follow and He took the cross. He says to us, take up your cross daily and we can look to Him and say, I know you were willing to. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's crying and he's, or he's sweating great drops of blood and he's praying to the Father and he says, if any way this cup can pass, meaning if there's another way to save mankind as opposed to going to the cross and going through all this pain and suffering, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, at that point in time, Jesus could have said, you know what, forget the cross. I am not going to go that direction. I'm not going to go through all that pain. I'm not going to go through all that suffering. He made a choice because of his love for you and me to say, you know what, I am going to do that because I know that's the only way to pay for the sin of the world and I'm willing to take that on myself. The first Sunday of every month, we take time just to remember that very event through communion. And we're going to do that now if I can have the worship team come up. Ray's going to go ahead and pass out communion, and I would just, uh, if you're here this morning and you've accepted Jesus Christ, then uh, we encourage you to partake with us. Uh, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus, just allow the communion elements to pass by. This is not something for you to take. It's just a time for us to remember what Jesus did for us, remember that he gave his life for us, shed his blood for us. Um, you can go ahead, Ray. And uh, just ask you to hold on to the elements uh, and As we hold on to those elements, we're going to sing a worship song. And I just want you uh, to challenge you. Just take some time just to reflect on what God's done for you, but also take some time. If there's some sin in your life, if there's some things that you need to deal with and come and repent to the Lord, you know, this is a great time just to come and repent and ask for forgiveness before we partake of this. And, And also I would just challenge you to think about, you know, are you really being a disciple? Are you really willing to deny yourself? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to die to yourself? And if there's things that you're saying, you know what, I'm not willing to give this to you, Lord, I would encourage you to ask him to help you to do that this morning.
And so we're just going to take some time to sing a worship song while this is being passed out. And I just challenge you just to hold on to the elements, reflect upon what Jesus has done. I'll come back up and then uh, we'll take communion together.